the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life, whose mission is to eliminate health disparities across race, ethnicity, gender, and zip code. For this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, three members of the Lashur extended family gathered at the annual Movement is Life caucus to discuss their tradition of working in service to the greater good, a tradition which goes back many generations. Aaron Lashur has served as a naval officer, police officer, and held senior leadership positions at the FBI. Sharon Lashur Roy has held senior positions with Florida Blue and Vistar Credit Union and served on the Movement is Life steering committee for many years. Alan Brooks Lashur has served with the EPA as a senior DEI advisor to the Biden-Harris transition team and is currently vice president for communications with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Their discussion touches on aspects of diversity, equity, inclusion that these family members have witnessed in different spheres of service, but where similar patterns rise to the surface and reflect ever-evolving norms in the context of racial diversification, inclusion, and advancement. Sharon Lashore Roy leads the discussion. Well, I'm Sharon LaShore Roy, and I'm here as the Vice President of Social Marketing for Vistar Credit Union, one of the largest credit unions in Florida. And um, I am also a part of the steering committee for Movement is Life and have been a part of it for eight years. And I'm excited to be here at the National Caucus meeting, which is two years in the making in person. I'm Alan Brooks LaShore, Vice President of Communications for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropy focused on health and well-being. Pleasure to be here. And I'm Aaron LaShore. I'm a retired uh, senior executive with the FBI, and um, I'm part of uh, Mirror Project uh, currently. Glad to be here. You know, we're kind of excited about this session that's totally off the cuff because we realize this is like LaShore's on equity. We could probably have our own podcast, but, you know, we're here today to talk about the caucus and, you know, why equity was important even in our family. You know, I think, you know, Aaron, you probably have a really great story about our mutual grandfather, Alfred LaShore, and what he did to serve the country and and all the things that we do um, as well. Share a little bit about that. Yes, a little known history fact in our family, um, the LaShores, our grandfather, uh, Alfred LaShore, um, went into the Navy during World War II, and um, he was going to be a CB, which is a, a, a part of the Naval Battalion, and they did construction during World War II. While he was at Camp um, uh, Perry, um, they singled him out because he was a good swimmer and asked him if he wanted to do anything special. And from Camp Perry, which uh, used to be a part of a three-letter agency at the time during World War II, known as the OSS, um, he went on to become a UDT SEAL. So uh, one of the first uh, uh, African-Americans to do so, and that was one of the great stories that I heard from him uh, prior to his passing and uh, try to keep that legacy alive. Yeah, it's really cool, though, about the serving. I met Alan, you went to the Citadel. Like, you know, tell a little bit about your history of serving, and then we really can get into Aaron. I think sometimes I'm underachieving in that regard because these two maybe have actually saved the world. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the, like, slacker, the surfer of the family. You know, I'm just chilling. 
Um, you know, and you go to the Citadel if you're a slacker server. Right? That's a, that persona works perfectly at a school like that. Uh, no, I think um, the idea of service uh, has always been intriguing to me, even as a young age. And I think when you think about service sometimes, you think about doing it one way. And, and what was, I think, pretty important to me in my development was seeing that there were a lot of ways to serve the nation. And you can do it in uniform, you can do it out of uniform, um, but serving either in defense of the nation or in defense of the nation's values. And um, that is something that has always been important to me from a young age. So, Aaron, 22 years in the FBI? 22 I, years. Talk about service. And He's the oldest here. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly older a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, 22 years in the FBI. Um, I worked uh, six years on Orlando Police Department prior to that as a police officer, and prior to that, I was a naval officer. Um, and uh, so all I know is service to my country um, and uh, protecting the citizens. And I think what, what drove me there was I, I knew I wanted to, to serve. I knew I wanted to be in the military, which uh, my father was, our grandfather was, our great-grandfather was in World War I. So if you go through the history, we can go back on both sides of our family. Everyone has served in every war um, on both sides of the family. So that's, that's something um, that we're proud of to protect the values of this country. And I think that's very important. And in the FBI, I, I always wanted to work um, espionage and counterintelligence. Uh, I came in. They put me on violent crimes and major offenders, my, my first uh, uh, rodeo. But uh, I had done that uh, previously uh, as a police officer. But eventually... I finally got to work counterintelligence and espionage, and um, I learned a language along the way, which, which helped me in that particular task. But, uh, you know, in that endeavor, you do go through a career where uh, equity and trying to find diversity um, is certainly a challenge because uh, in the FBI Academy, I ended up being the only African-American walking around the Academy when we had classes every two weeks. I was the only African-American in my class. Um, and every office I went to, I was the only African-American in that office until I went to Miami. Um, being the only African-American executive at a field office, I was in Washington field office. I was the only African-American executive there at a particular point in time. Either it was two or one. I was there when it was two, and then I was the only one uh, at that field office. But we deal with those things. And I think we... At, from an equity standpoint, and all of us, we are a standard bearer, and I think we deal with those pressures in a different way when you know a thousand eyes are upon you all the time, every second of the day, every minute of the day, and uh, you comport and carry yourself in a different way. But it has a side effect, too, as well. Now, that's interesting that you say that, that you carry yourself in a in a special way. And Aaron tries to say that he's the oldest, but we are actually twins, and I have four minutes on him. Yeah. Literally, he was kicking me out the womb because I probably talked too got much tired. for him. I got tired. I, I was, it was time to finish. She was hosting a podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the yeah, womb. Yeah, she was. In yeah, the womb. Yeah, in the yeah. womb. It's yeah. like, get out. But, you know, we talk about caring ourselves and how important that is to equity. You know, I, I like to say it's about being in the room. Even if you're the only one, and when it comes to, you know, I've worked for an insurance company for so long, and, you know, you talk about health equity. We talk about doing things that's right. I mean, I, I had the pleasure of even hosting 
you know, Alan and Aaron, you know, on different sessions for, you know, some seminars we were doing called Living While Black. And sometimes it's an uncomfortable conversation, but being in the room is where you can actually make things happen. And I know being on this steering committee for Movement is Life has really driven that home. I've been able to learn even techniques when I'm the only one in the room where you have to address things. We were doing a commercial and, you know, when you're able to look and say, hey, let's take a look at the talent, you know, for a brand. You know, I've been the one that went the corporate route from the beginning. So I've taken what, you know, I think that level of service, because I think I'm serving the reputation of an organization the best by protecting it. So it might not have been with the gun or, you know, overseas, but I still feel like, you know, being in the room where it happens really makes a big difference. And it's important, too, to talk about the issues so people understand what's going on. Uh, and to be clear, I was a diplomat, so I didn't have a gun. I had a pen, <laughs> but it was like, there was like a How lot of ink in that How pen. You know what I mean? Yes, like, yes. It was like really a lot of ink in the pen. Now, you so, know James Bond had some pens. Come right. on now. Oh, uh, no, these were like Bic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. was no James Bond There was pen. no cue. No, there was no, no. I didn't like signal an Aston Martin. Right? No, there was none of that. Oh, he signaled me a couple of times. <laughs> I, knew his, I knew his handwriting. <laughs> you know, one thing about being at the conference, you know, Alan was speaking today, I mean, and, and he's on a panel about activism. You know, is there a way what we're doing, even on our own individual level, you know, a level of activism or activating for health equity or racial equity? So even in the nonprofit world or corporate world or working for the Department of Justice, you know, how do we make sure that there's equity? Like, how do we, on an individual level, make that happen? Is it about activism? Is it individualism? You know, how do we do that? You know, I think a lot of people of color and women, they, when we find ourselves at work, there's sort of two struggles. There's the internal struggle and then the external struggle, right? So trying to get our organizations, whether it's government, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, they all have a variant of the same problem, right? And really thinking about um, how getting an organization to be better on the inside will help them be better on the outside. And and also making sure there's consistency between what they say to the outside and who they are on the inside. And I think the first step on this is you have to notice. You know, I've had conversations with people where I say, you know, there was only one person of color in the whole room. And they said, really? Like, I didn't even notice that, right? And just think about all of the rooms and meetings that people are going, that they don't even pick that up. Um, so that's a service just to point that out to people. You know, even if you don't write some grand plan, but just to say, this can't be who we are. Yeah. I thought we were better than yeah. us. That's powerful. Yeah, he, you know yes. you should talk about the, well, the mirror project right. in reference to that. What a great connection. So, you know, while in the FBI, and, and Alan brings up a great point, and all of us, you know, at this table, we have always, at some point, been the only one in the room. And people don't understand that. And I can bring up two examples. And I can remember at the Washington field office, and we had all of the supervisors where there's special agent in charge, assistant special agent in charge, where I was at the time, and all supervisors. And there were approximately 50-plus people in this room having a bag lunch with former director James Comey. And I can remember I was sitting at the end of the table, and we were talking about equity, and the room became very silent. And I just raised my hand, 
because I put on my pants just like the director does, and I worked my behind off to get there. And I, I told him, I said, it's very difficult for me to recruit people and to mentor people to come into the supervisory roles of the FBI because they don't see people who look like me. And everyone looked, and then they started putting their heads down at the table. And I said, I need help. I can't be the only one speaking about this, even though I may be the only one at this table. And I can remember um, the assistant deputy uh, agent in charge coming down after Comey. Comey said, you're right, we, we do have a serious problem. And uh, he told me, Aaron, thank you for bringing that up today at the meeting. And I said, well, look, uh, someone has to. And if I'm in the room and I don't bring it up, nothing's going to happen. And he says, uh, you know, everybody says, hey, and everybody comes up, oh, man, that was brave to say. Well, you know, I'm the only one in the room that has to be brave to say it. Why can't my peers look at who's sitting at this table and recognize the same thing? And um, that was one of the things that um, really struck me. But also what strikes me and why I got involved in the Mirror Project, which we advocate for diversity within the FBI. These are retired uh, senior executives, um, formerly of the FBI, who see a problem. Because the FBI right now, um, you have close to 14,000 special agents, but less than 5% are African American. So that's 500 to 600 agents throughout the world who are African American in the FBI. Which, if we don't mirror the community that we serve and the world that we serve, how can we get better? But more importantly, how can we objectively look at challenges that we have within the organization if we don't bring that diversity of thought, that diversity of background into a room, i.e., the summer's protests, Black Lives Matter? Well, at that point in time, there were nothing but white males who were on the seventh floor in the FBI making those decisions. What if you would have had someone, a person of color, to could bring a different perspective from their life into that room to bring that that conversation to the table? Um, could you have had a different um, perspective? Could DOJ have reacted in a different way because you had different individuals at that table bringing forth the frustration of the community that we serve and understanding where we should be and where we should pivot to actually address those challenges? So I think those are the things that, that really strike me. And you know, that's so powerful when you talk about being a mirror of the community. You know, in some ways, whether health equity, financial equity, you know, it's about being filled with people that mirror the community. Because I, I think one of the things, you know, it's about policy too, right? Daniel Dawes said something so important to me that we can't return to normalcy today earlier about after COVID. Oh, well, let's go back to normal. But what was normal in equity? Like, look what it exposed. COVID did a few things, you know, and not only sadly killed almost, you know, a million Americans, but it exposed all of the inequities in society from who actually takes out the track, who's mm. driving the bus. If these people are exposed and they're dying, who mm. else is going to take care of that? Like, mm -hmm. let's look at the supply chain now. Is it, mm -hmm. is it because these people are no longer there? You know, you hear all these stories about the great, you know, recession or the great resignation during COVID. Mm, right. Maybe these mm. people aren't alive. <laughs> they're not there right. anymore. Like, are those things that, you know, have been uncovered? The mm. people that are living below the margins or under mm. the margins right. or under the, like, off the grid that are just surviving. And now mm. look what COVID did for that. So 
it exposed so many inequities. And, um, I mean, I don't, Alan, what do you think about that? I mean, gosh. I... Yeah, I think that um, the advent of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, tethered with an economic downturn, tethered to COVID, I mean, it's inescapable, uh, um, the inequities in our system, in multiple systems, right? You know, I reread something that I wrote about a year ago, and I was skeptical about how long this goodwill. I mean, you had all these, uh, you had corporations that couldn't spell Juneteenth the week before, putting right. out Juneteenth right. statements and giving their employees right. off. And I mean, Preach. all these like, you know, feel good things mm. that don't do anything to infuse economic viability and stability in certain communities, don't do anything to really narrow uh, the, the gaps that we have uh, in, in so many of these sectors and weren't really long lasting. It was, um, it felt good, but it didn't last. And, you know, my view a year ago was that we were entertaining the idea of changing. We weren't actually changing anything. And unfortunately, that's bearing out. I think that we, we're still, we still have a moment. We still have a time, I think, when we can try to push uh, changes forward. Um, I, don't, I don't think this moment is going to last forever. Um, and we're already seeing backlashes to, you know, much of the conversations, many of the conversations that we were having even a year ago, we're seeing a swing in the opposite direction. Um, you know, and I think that um, we have to decide as a nation who we are. Um, and, you know, I feel like the, the, the movements uh, throughout American history, abolition, suffrage, civil rights, immigrant rights, really essentially put some critical questions in front of this nation. Are you who you say you are, or should you be something better? And I think that's a question that we have to pose to the nation again. And I think that we can't be satisfied with just a day off, mm -hmm. uh, you know, throughout the year. Mm -hmm. We need to really pursue lasting policy and, and changes in statute mm -hmm. that can alleviate a lot of the pain and a lot of the hurt that's happening throughout this country. Right. You know, I feel, for me, that everything that my country, that I truly and deeply love, and that I wanted to protect my entire life and have done so, that others within this country do not want to recognize that or respect that from a person who looks like me. Because people in this nation really disparage me as someone who was in the military, disparage me as someone who was a police officer, disparage me as someone who was an FBI special agent and retired. Everything that I've done caused into question about what this country really stands for and is willing to stand by to say we are all accepted in this country. Your service, your sacrifice is accepted in this country because you are a citizen, because you stepped forward and volunteered to serve. And I believe there are a lot of individuals who do need to look in the mirror at themselves to say, what have I done to serve my country? Not asked, 
what do the you know what does my country owe me right that's not what it's about but a lot of people are thinking that the country owes them something and i like to say well it doesn't owe us anything what our country and our government here is to protect us so that we have the freedom to pursue and to reach or exceed our potential in any way that we can and that government is here to protect you and and that right to give you that freedom to do so but not to harm others while you're doing it um not to put shackles on the rights of others who don't look like you and you pursuing that opportunity it's supposed to be fairness about it and um i think that was one of the things in the last years that really put into questions especially in the fbi uh when i thought about it seriously that um any organization can be usurped and it only takes a a little tip for people to not take action where they have taken an oath to take action to protect the least of these and i think for me that's the thing that our country has to face is that are we protecting the least of these are we respecting the least of these and um and we're not going tribal in it that uh, power matters the most and uh i think that's where we we are and and we have a reckoning in our country we have to face you know <clears throat> i don't you, you, it's air when you say stuff like that it's almost like it gives you kind of chills because it is a reckoning right but you know you think of events like this or even this caucus or this steering committee where you know you got to be a catalyst for change but alan was right when he said you you got to uncover it you got to talk about it we mm. got to say are we okay with this and you know it is interesting how that pendulum kind of going back and forth mm. you know okay we're you know everybody is going to move this way that you know we are uncovering things that we need to change um but how do we keep going like how would you keep going you know alan how are you going to keep going even though the pendulum's changing you know it's got to be more than just oh let's go attend this conference and learn from people mm. that are mm. kind of thinking mm. the same way you think mm. you know how do we how do we make that change i know for me it's when i get up to go to to the office and i may be one of the only few when i'm in the room and i have an opportunity to say something even though it could be uncomfortable i've got to say it and i'm going to address mm. it hey these are some things that we need to look at mm. you know why don't we do this and and i'm blessed enough to be in a place where they appreciate that mm. yeah. and and it makes some you know some change that you can see like on the television or you can see in the room or at the building so mm. i think for me it's going to be you know i get up every day i see where i can make a difference and then talk about that and talk and help other people mm-hmm. too cuz you know yeah. you guys are both big mentors i know you are Aaron cuz i went to your retirement ceremony it was full of people that he had mentored and it was amazing and um so you know alan how do you, how do you see mm-hmm. even though the pendulum goes back and forth how do we effectively keep being a catalyst for change well I, well so first off i'm trying to be retired like aaron uh, <laughs> I may not get there with you. <laughs> but I've been to the mountaintop. Um look, I think for me uh two things um 
Two things other than my family sustain me uh, during difficult times, my faith and history. Mm -hmm. Um, And when this nation has gone through really difficult periods, you know, I try to get more rooted in my faith and history. And the important thing about history, I think it, it shines a light on what's possible for the future. And it tells you how previous generations endured, but it also says that it is a relay race and there is a baton that we're mm-hmm. holding and there is work that we have to carry forward. And I think that it's important for us to stretch out the timeline, right? You know, America looks different if you start the clock at 1776. It looks mm-hmm. very different when you start the clock at 1619, mm-hmm. right? And when you think about, um, you know, we were told stories about Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. and Thomas Jefferson and mm-hmm. I love Benjamin Franklin. I think he was a gangster. <laughs> he is my favorite so-called founding father. Um, but you have to look at the role of uh, blacks from the foundation, from the pre-foundation of this nation economically. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about the wealth that was created from industry, and if you think about planters as being modern-day corporate CEOs, which is what mm-hmm. they were, um, and how that wealth built on top of it, blacks building the Capitol, the White mm-hmm. House, the actual wall that yes. was on Wall Street. Yes. Um, and I think that when you stretch out that timeline, what that says to me is that I have as much say about this country's trajectory Mm -hmm. than anybody. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if your people were on the Mayflower. Mm -hmm. Like, mine were on a ship, too. (laughs) It was a different ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was a different ship. Yes. Uh, We didn't have to pay. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's the upside. Uh, But, you know, that means that I have a stake, and I really feel deputized by my ancestors to say, like, Mm -hmm. it's my job to continue to try to push this forward, working in partnership with Mm -hmm. other people. Oh, I yeah. love that. Deputized yeah. yeah. by my ancestors. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. do you think, Aaron? I mean, well, yeah, I, you know, and I agree with everything Alan's saying, and, and it's going to take courage for people individually to step outside of their comfort zone and take risks. Um, I had a buddy who, who retired 20 days after I did, and he is... Um, big into politics, but he, he, he's big into his faith. And he wrote an article that really a lot of people um, read, and it was about Walt Disney and the Falcon and the, and the, the Winter. Winter Soldier, the program that Disney was at. And he went on a rant. I don't want to be preached to. Uh, Disney has gone too far. I shouldn't be told what to think. And, you know, I don't believe in in what he was talking about. And and he was talking about the last episode where Mackie is is in front of the cameras talking about how this country doesn't love me, right? Um, But I'm a black man, and every time I put on this uniform and I wear it, I'm here to protect it, even though you may not think, um, you know, about me in that way. And so I read this article, and I knew him, and, I, I, and we were connected on LinkedIn, so I hit them up. And I said, hey, very interesting article that, that you wrote. Love to speak with you about it. And we were good friends, and he got back with me. We made a date, time I called him up, and he said, first thing, Aaron, let's, let's, you know, come, I know you're going to grill me, and I know you're going to get on me about this, but you know, let's, let's be faithful about it. But I said, no, I just, I just wanted to have a conversation because I wanted to understand where where your thought process was with this article. 
And we got to talking about our backgrounds. And when I told him about my background, because he didn't know I was a police officer, he didn't know that I was in the military previously. And I told him, I said, when I was young, and Sharon and I, um, my dad was in the military, moved around, but we had to go to school in Alabama one semester. And I can remember, in Alabama, we were bused. And that was the beginning of busing. And at the bus depot, we saw KKK in the Confederate battle flag, and shots were fired, and we had to be evacuated out of the back of a bus by Alabama state troopers, finest, okay? I, and I had to explain this to him. Yes. I said, but that wasn't the first time we were bused because Dad moved again because he was in the Navy as well, and we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and we had to be bused again. And, and yet again, we go through those, those same things. But I went through my history, and I told him this one story. I said, when I first came out of the academy and I was assigned in Louisville, Kentucky, I was doing a background check uh, on a presidential appointee. I went to a home, and it was an elderly woman, and she came to the door, and I showed her my creds. I was in my finest blue suit. I, I thought I was, I was it. I'm a special agent with the FBI. I'm great. Oh, this is great, right? And the lady looked at me, and she said, there are no N-word special agents in the FBI. And she just kept repeating it. And I, ma'am, here, here's my creds, here's my card, you can call the office. Sure enough, she gets on the phone to call. I have this in sitting at my door claiming to be a special agent with the FBI. And it happened to be the radio uh, operator that I knew and told him I was going out to, to, to conduct this background. And he said, well, ma'am, describe him for me. <laughs> and she, he described everything, she described everything. No, no, ma'am, he just arrived here in Louisville. He, he is an actual special agent with the FBI. You know, you can go there. Well, have him show you his credits. I showed him my creds again. And does he have this number on the bottom of his creds? And he had the number of my badge number. That, that would be him, ma'am. Yes, yes. And she said, but there aren't any N-word special agents in the FBI. And, but, but there are now, ma'am. And she said, well, okay. And so she opens the door. She goes and she makes coffee in her finest china because I was in a well-to-do neighborhood. She had coffee. I did my back, I conducted my interview, and at the end of the interview, I said, ma'am, you know what? I said, you are absolutely right. If you don't believe that someone is a special agent, we have a lot of people here impersonating and trying to be a special agent. You should call them. And, and we said our goodbyes, and I walked out the door. Now, I don't know if the woman went and threw all her china out, I don't know if I was to talk at the country club saying I actually met a black FBI agent, right? But, you know, I thought about this in the future that my interaction with her could have gone any number of ways. I could have just walked away and not even completed the interview. I could have, you know, said other things. You know, that's the box in the top of your head that's silent that you, you're saying those things. But I think about this in the future. The next person that she meets that's an African-American male, or African-American female, will she give them a chance to speak to them? Did that make a difference in her life? Maybe it was a difference because she talked about it at the country club that she was in, or her neighbors. Oh, I met this person. Maybe that was a change. I don't know. However, we are kept to a higher standard than others. And if we're talking about equity, that was one of those moments where we have to go above the fray to change whatever narrative she may have thought about and how she thought about African-Americans at that point, maybe that helped in the future. But that showed me in 1997 that 
this country still had a long way to go. And that even though I thought I may have reached the pinnacle, right, of law enforcement and counterintelligence, that hold on one second, young buck, um, there's still some things that have to be worked on. And, uh, and I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and there, that wasn't the first instance, and I have many more, but I just remember that because that was my first instance out as an FBI agent, and that always will leave an impression upon me about my country and about individuals and how they think about people. So, Aaron, um, she didn't throw away the China. Um, she saved it for the next time a black person came to her house so she could use the same cup and saucer. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just plain sense. And I need to correct something you said. You said you were in your finest blue suit. Um, I don't know that anybody in government service is known for wearing fine suits. <laughs> they usually don't fit, and sometimes don't match. So uh, I was just out of the academy, so I, don't I know. was in shape at that time. So I did feel pretty good about myself. Bro. You guys are funny. I think the you know in closing, you know I I just love this conversation about Lashores on equity. You know whether it's equity in a boardroom or equity running down a suspect or, you know, being in the Department of Justice or how we even help our nonprofits. And I think it's about, you know, being in the room, you know, from our grandfather being in the room, actually being in the ocean, mm. but being in the room was important and it was mm. pivotal. You know, when a few years later, you know, our dad who looks so, you know, Aaron and our father mm. who looks so similar to our mm. grandfather mm. at was we were at this pretty cool event where, you know, they were bringing a black church and a synagogue together to talk about, you know, how we're together and, you know, you know how all of our struggles. And they had the pastor speak and they, you know, had the rabbi speak. We ate collard greens and, you know, matzo ball soup. It was just this whole thing. And there was like this 95-year-old guy and he's in the in the room like you know you go after service and you have snacks you know after and he comes up to dad and he's like LaShore LaShore what are you like LaShore what are you doing here like he's 95 he's real mm. and then my dad yeah our dad's like what like what and then he's like Alfred like this guy knew grandfather he said we served together and then finally he said oh that's my dad because he looks so much like him that this, so we talk about equity, that they were, he said, yeah, we we used to do that, you know, go do those bomb things, but they told us not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, what's interesting, we talk about equity, and we talked about, we need to talk about it. Hmm. You know, our grandfather never really told all those stories about him. He just said he was in the Navy, and that's what he did. He, he never talked about how much he served. And so mm -hmm. for me, that it was kind of full circle for that mm -hmm. story, to, that random guy to come up to talk to Aaron and our father because mm -hmm. he looks so much like him. Well, you know, granddad used to take the shrapnel out of his legs and throw it at us, so, you know, it was yeah. great. <laughs> I'm glad I missed yeah. that. <laughs> but it's, it's just an interesting thing about being in the room. So thank you for this conversation. I'm so glad you're here at the caucus and, you know, we're able to talk about this and and um, and and really connect, you know. It's almost like a family mm. reunion because we're like, oh, we're all here, and we all kind of look similar. So people would know us. See, this is a podcast, <laughs> so you will not know us to see us. But you know, it's it's good. We'll stuff. have matching shirts yes, next yes, year. Yes, yes, yes. big little sure yes. on it. 
and then other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the Movement is Life Health Disparities podcast. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you.